Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. Welcome here, everybody. Right in the middle of summer, this is great, great time of year. And uh, good to have you all with us. If you're a visitor here, if you're new, we're right in the middle of a series this summer we're spending uh, studying the story of David. So in summertime, often we like to do a character study. And, uh, and I, you know, I've been kind of looking at it more and more. I, I didn't really, I, I pushed it out of my mind. I didn't want to think about it that much at the beginning of the series. But the story of David is long, long, long. And I've obviously bitten off far more than I can chew in the summer. Uh, so I'm not sure what I'm going to do. In fall, in a, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going on vacation. I'm still up next week. But, uh, but we're not anywhere near to finishing the story of David. So either I'm going to keep going in fall or I could just leave this till next summer. And then I just already know what my next summer series is. I'm not sure. But uh, so far, uh, the, we've gone through chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16 is where the story of David starts in the Bible. And so he spent two weeks in chapter 16. That's the anointing of David. And then uh, David going into Saul's service when Saul was under the oppression of, of, uh, of an evil spirit. And then last week, we looked at one of the most famous stories in the Bible, but not just in the Bible, but actually in all of the world. The David and Goliath story is, you know, uh, it's not just Christians who know about that story now. It's, it's permeated the consciousness, really, of the whole world. And so we, we spent last week in chapter 17. And this week, we're going to keep going with chapter 18. And, and one of the things I just love about doing a character study is every chapter, it's not like there's a, there's a theme necessarily that runs through the whole uh, story. Every chapter, because a human, this is how human life is. Every chapter is just totally different. So last week, we're in David and Goliath. This week's message is going to be totally different. We're going to talk about friendship and insecurity and jealousy and some of those things. Every chapter is just totally different because just, that's just how uh, a story works. And so I'm going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to get into this. But I just want to affirm again to uh, how important it is that we be in this, in this book regularly. And not just when you come to church, but we need this book increasingly. And we're, part of the message today, too, we'll talk about deception. But uh, we need to be in this book. If we're going to be kept from being swayed this way and that by deception and lies and all kinds of things and washed away, we're going to have to be in this book a, a lot, aren't we? This is God's word, and we need it. Amen? And so I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to close your eyes. And let's ask the Lord to speak to us through his word this morning. Lord Jesus, we love you. And we want to love you more. Thank you for summer. Thank you for this season of summer. Thank you for the hot weather. Thanks that we can go outside and do stuff with our families and vacations and all of that. Thank you even more, though, Lord Jesus, for your word that ministers to us, that keeps us strong. It is a foundation. I pray that it would be the foundation for this church and for our individual lives. Jesus, that we wouldn't just come to church to hear this, but that we would genuinely build our lives on your word. And I thank you, Jesus, for what you're going to do today as we study it. In your name we pray. Amen. So chapter 18, verse 1, and uh, just to quickly recap the end of last week's story, remember that there's, there's no chapter headings in the, in the original. Those are put there later for, to help us find things. So the story just continues to seamlessly move. But at the end of chapter 17, you know, David has, has struck down Goliath. He's chopped off his head with his own sword, all that fun stuff. And now Saul calls him into his tent, and they're kind of celebrating and talking all this sort of stuff. And in chapter 18, verse 1, David is now coming out of Saul's tent. And so we pick up the story, all right? So 18, verse 1, and as soon as he, that's David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that's Saul's son Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So uh, this is really important because we're going we're gonna to rabbit trail in just a moment. In verses 3 and 4, we're going to spend a little bit of a, a time in a rabbit trail. Then we're going to come back to this. But I want you to notice here that Saul is really pumped about David, okay? Really excited. So David has helped him out in a big way. Saul should have been the one fighting Goliath. David did it for him, rescued them from the Philistines. He's really excited. But as we're going to see in this story, uh, Saul's love for David is going to turn to hate very quickly. Okay, and that's a very human thing to do, all right? We're going to see that, but we're going to keep reading. And first, there's a bit of a rabbit trail we're going to go on. But I want you to notice here, first of all, that Saul really loves David. He doesn't want to let him go, okay? And then we come to verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And so the right here, I just want to spend 10 minutes or so here at the beginning of this message on a little bit of a rabbit trail here in verses 3 and 4. 
And uh, um, because, and I really believe that this is important. Some of you will never have heard what I'm about to talk about. You've never heard about before. Some of you definitely have. Those of you who are young people, if you haven't heard this yet already, you will at some point. Um, and I just, I feel more and more, I've felt pressed recently. I just feel like one of the things the Holy Spirit is, is pressing me on is to have a little bit of an apologetic note in many of these messages because more and more the Bible itself is under attack and it's just amazing the intensity with which the attack is coming more and more uh, in our culture against the Bible and, and, uh, and all kinds of different ideas floating around and, and, and Satan is really at work. But anyway, one of the things I want to talk about is becoming increasingly popular. It, it was never heard uh, for 3,000 years, but in the last decade it's becoming increasingly popular. Uh, books are being written with this, even some liberal commentaries. It's all over online. But something that people are saying more and more is based on verses 3 and 4. They're saying that Jonathan and David were gay. Okay? Now, some of you kind of, some of you go, kind of go, well, that's, that's ridiculous. And it is actually ridiculous. But the reason I bring it up again is more and more people are actually believing this. Whole churches now are talking about this and preaching this and discussing this as if it's a, a legitimate theory. And I want to talk about that for a little moment because it's just, there's more and more stuff. It's not just this issue. It's not just this passage. Stuff like this all the time. I think part of the devil's strategy is just quantity sometimes. It's just, if you can throw enough stuff out there and plant enough seeds of doubt, he can, he can make Christians uh, go into deception. And lots of Christians are falling for this. But the reason I bring it up is because the Bible itself warns us that stuff like this will happen in the last days. I want to read you. We should not be surprised at things like this. We should not be surprised that there's all this deception and attack out there. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4, uh, Paul says this. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Okay? Is that not? I mean, he's just pegging our current culture today, isn't he? 2,000 years ago. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. He says, a time is coming when people are going to go to the scriptures and they're going to find teachers and authors for themselves who will just tell them what they want to hear. So you're going to have a whole section of the culture will just throw the Bible out entirely, but then you're going to have a whole other section of the culture. They'll want to use the Bible to prop up what they want to hear. So for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Just literally turn away from the truth and wander off into myths. And you go, how can you believe something like that? This is what's happening. This is what Paul's warning about. Peter, the apostle Peter, also talked about this. He said this, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So again, like I said before, Paul and Peter both warn about people who won't just throw out the Bible. That's a whole other message, right? You've got atheists and stuff, and they'll just say, throw out the Bible. But you'll have a whole other group of people that will go into the Bible and take passages out of the Bible and twist them to say what they want those passages to say. And as a church, we're going to need to grow in discernment, not just as a church corporately, but also individually, because these are the kinds of things we're going to encounter more and more and more at school and at work and at our family gatherings. We're going to encounter these things more and more. And so many Christians are being tossed this way and that. They hear someone comes up with a sophisticated argument and they think, well, I never heard that before. And, and, you know, the church and, and the people, the original people who heard this story 3,000 years ago and listened to this story and read this story over 3,000 years of history, nobody interpreted it that way, but someone comes along with a new sophisticated argument and a bunch of Christians go, well, yeah, it just, I guess so. I never saw it before. But we're going to have to actually grow in some discernment. Amen. We're going to have to grow in discernment and not be so easily swayed. And I, I want to tell you one of the sof sophisticated sounding uh, kind of arguments that the devil loves to use. And it's, called, it's one of his strategies that fools a lot of Christians. And I just want to open your eyes to it, and then you'll know when you see it. But one of the ways that the devil will often try to, to twist Scripture is one of his strategies is to use word studies, okay? So word studies. So in this case, what they, and, I'll, and I'll show you this in just a moment. So, so what they'll do is they'll look at a word, and they'll say, um, see, this word means uh, all kinds of different things. It can mean this, it can mean this, it can mean this, it can mean this. And then they'll pick out whatever meaning it is that they want the word to have. They'll take that one. They'll find you a few examples where the word was used for that. Then they'll bring it back into this passage and say, see, this is what it means. Okay? 
So for example, in this, in this uh, passage, uh, you can just forget about Deuteronomy 6, 5 for just a moment, but then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved. Now the Hebrew word there is ahab, and the Hebrew word ahab is, uh, is used for all kinds of things in the Old Testament. And certainly one of the things it's used for is the love between a husband and wife. So they come along, they do a word study, they say, see, ahab means love. And, and look, here's a passage and here's a passage where it's used the love between a husband and wife. Therefore, uh, Jonathan and David loved each other kind of maritally as a husband and wife. It, it was like a sexual uh, love. And Christians go, oh, wow, I never saw that before in the Hebrew, okay? The, the problem is that kind of reasoning is utterly, absolutely ridiculous because, I mean, the same thing is true in the English language. We use a word to mean many different things, okay? So, for example, we use the word love in English to, to mean different things as well. So, I would say that I love my wife, LaDawn, with the word love. And I would also say I love my brother, Stefan, with the word love. And someone could come along, you know, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now and say, boy, him and his brother were a little weird. And you'd say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay? It's not the same. We use the same word to mean different things. Well, yeah, but we can do a word study and show examples where you use love. Yes. And here's the thing with word studies. They mean nothing apart from context. They mean absolutely nothing apart from context. So the word ahab means love. It's used 208 times in the Old Testament. It's used for all kinds of things. And most of the time, it has nothing to do with husband and wife love. It's the same word used for the love between Abraham and Isaac. And nobody thinks that was weird. Uh, it's the same word used for the love between Isaac and Esau and Jacob and Joseph. And even here in many places, like in Deuteronomy 6.5, it's the same word used when we're commanded to love the Lord our God. So you shall love ahab the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And of course, that is not a marital kind of love. It's not a sexual kind of love there. Okay? So a word study, when you read a story, so, and I've seen this with all kinds of things. This is just one talk. I wanted to bring this up because it's used for all kinds of things nowadays, and it's one of the devil's sophisticated arguments that, that snows a bunch of Christians is, is here's a word study, and boom, here's what this thing means now, and I've seen people explain away hell. I've seen people do all kinds of weird things with this story. I've seen people do weird things with all kinds of doctrines, and Christians go, look at that, all because of a word study. So let me tell you, when someone does a word study, uh, and, and by the way, not all word studies obviously are bad. I sometimes use them in our messages. And of course, I'm even kind of doing a word study right now, aren't I? Okay. The point is you don't change all your doctrine and theology based on a word study. You go back and just read the thing in its context. The most important thing to tell you what a word means is not a word study. It's the context of the passage. Just like when I say I love my brother Stefan and I love my wife LaDawn, the most important thing to you there is not to pull that word love out and figure out all the different things the word love could be used for. It's also used for, I, I mean, I use it when I talk about loving pizza. Did he eat his brother? Weird, <laughs> right? The point is not to figure out all the different things this thing could mean and then put them back in and figure out which one I want. The point is just look at the context and just see what the story says. And then you won't be fooled. And for 3,000 years, people have read this story and nobody took it that way because it wasn't supposed to be taken that way. And so if you just read the story, you'll see that it's not there. Now, of course, the objection is, but Jonathan stripped off his robe. But again, stuff like this is absolutely ridiculous. It doesn't mean that he stripped off his robe in front of David. Uh, this was an ancient Eastern uh, custom, which I'll come back to at the end of this message. But when they would honor people, Okay, and again, if you just read the whole story, it'll be obvious to you. If you just read the verse, the word study, and then the stripping off the robe, you go, oh my, I never saw that before. But if you just read the whole thing, you'll see there's nothing sexual about it. Um, but in, in the ancient East, one of the ways that you would honor, one of the most profound ways you could honor someone was to exchange your armor or exchange some clothing or whatever it is. And the same thing even happens today in international soccer matches sometimes when two opponents or two superstars maybe that really respect each other at the end of the game, they'll sometimes switch jer jerseys. That's a custom that goes back thousands of years. In the ancient East, they would do the same thing to show honor. There's nothing uh, sexual or marital about that, all right? So part of why I'm bringing this up is, again, I'm not so much concerned about this passage or this topic alone. It's just a more common theme of, of Christians being brought under and we're going to have to grow into discernment. We're going to have to not just take snippets out here and there and be tossed this way and that by every wave of, of doctrine and teaching, but to actually grow and be saturated in the word. And even just to have proper reasoning. Can I say one more thing here too? Is even if this passage did talk about Jonathan and David being gay, it still wouldn't mean that it, that it was right. The Bible talks, tells all kind, us all kinds of things about David's life that we're not supposed to do. So far in this series, we've only got to the good parts. Maybe next summer, if I carry on this series, we'll do David the bad parts, okay? So this summer, David the good parts. Next summer, David the bad parts. Um, but there's a whole bunch of things that David did that were horrific. 
He murdered Uriah the Hittite. Well, by that same logic, you could go, well, I guess it's okay to murder. Absolutely not. And he, he slept, he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. That's a horrible thing. He, did, he was a bad parent. He did all kinds of things really bad. Even if this story did tell us that him and Jonathan had some kind of attraction to each other, it still wouldn't mean it was okay because the Bible repeatedly tells us in both the Old and New Testaments that it's not okay. That God's plan for sex is a husband and wife in marriage and that's it. That's the only thing that brings him glory and the only thing that's good for people. Does that make sense? So we need to grow, and I just, I just really have a passion. I have a passion for God's word, and I really believe in our culture today, there's this sweeping tide, this sweeping tide of political correctness and deception, and the only way we're going to be able to stand against it is if we're really rooted in this thing and really going down deep in this thing, and so that's an important thing. But anyway, let's go back to the story, and, and in verse 2 that we saw, Saul is, is really happy with David, okay? He's really happy with David. And so we keep reading verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Saul is now promoting David, okay? So things are going good. And then verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women uh, came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Right? Uh-oh. And I mean, really, and if you're these women, what were you thinking to sing that in front of the king? David's going, shh, cut it out, Right? Why, why would you sing that in front of the king? But they do, right? Verse 8. Now, remember, Saul's high on David. He's pumped on David. He's promoting David. Everything's good. Why? Because so far, David's been helping him. He's been doing his work for him. But now, in one moment, okay, in one moment, it's going to go from, I love you, David, to I hate you, David. Watch this. Verse 8. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Okay? How quickly approval can turn to rejection in a sinful, unhealthy human beings. Isn't that true? Amen. How quickly approval and We'll put it in quotations, love, because that's not real love, but how quickly approval and people's love of us can turn to rejection and hate in an unhealthy, sinful, wicked human being. And I wonder how many of us have ever experienced something like this in our lives. Maybe not to this extent, but I think it's actually a pretty common human experience because we humans are, are, are selfish and we're wounded. But I wonder how many of us have experienced something like this in our lives. Someone or someones, more than one, or a group of people, whatever, they were our best friends, they were our group, they were our circles, we were always together, it was awesome, 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 and then just like that, it just turns, right? We've got, there's people in our lives who are loyal, we're going to get to Jonathan at the end of this message, there's people in our lives who are loyal to us thick and thin, but how do you tell the difference on the front end? There's people who love us through thick and thin, and there's other people, they love you, they love you, love you, they, they think you're the world, you think they're the world, and all of a sudden, wham, they're against you. How quickly approval can turn to rejection, and you know, at first you might blame yourself, isn't that true? You're looking at yourself going, what did I do? How did, how did this happen? And you're examining. Now, part of that is a really good thing. We should examine ourselves off when there's relational disasters. Usually, we're playing some part in it. So we should look inward and say, uh, what, what have I done here? And many times, there will be a part that we've played, okay? But sometimes, actually, there's nothing you've done. In this case, David hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything wrong. He's just been doing exactly what Saul wants him to do. He's obeying. And we know from the rest of the story, as we go through the story, we're going to find David is phenomenally loyal to Saul. I mean, for Saul to be afraid of David is crazy. David is so loyal to him. This has nothing to do with David. This has everything to do with Saul. And one of the things you'll notice in this story, you say, well, well what do you do? Because there's two things we've got to look at now. First of all, the, the first one is, what do you do when someone does this to you? And then the second thing we've got to look at today is, how do you make sure that you don't do this to someone else? 
So first of all, what do you do if someone does this to you? What do you do if you're a David and, and a Saul does this to you? But then secondly, how do we make sure that we're not Saul's doing this to others? So what do you do when people do this to you? Well, f- the first thing I want you to notice is that David doesn't fall all over himself trying to apologize for something he didn't do. Okay? Now, saying sorry is a really good thing. When you've done something wrong, to admit, to humbly admit that you've done something wrong and to say sorry is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful thing to God. It's a wonderful thing to other people. It's a beautiful, you know, part of your care. That's just, that's just amazing. To be able to say sorry is amazing. But there are some cases, so, and oftentimes we are at fault and we gotta say sorry for whatever we did. We should look inside and we should see that. But sometimes there's da- these David and Saul situations where the problem isn't you. The problem is actually that their insides are all twisted up. And I want you to notice in this case, to say sorry for something you didn't do actually doesn't help the situation. It doesn't help the situation. And David doesn't fall all over himself trying to say sorry. Sometimes we try, sometimes, you know, most of the time when we say sorry, it's a good thing. It's an act of humility because we did something wrong. But sometimes when we're saying sorry, we're not saying sorry for anything real. We're just saying sorry because we're desperate to get the approval back. And we're just desperate for approval. We just want it back. I want that person to like me again. But you know, there's a, there's a great quote, and I'm, I'm going to quote to you. This is the first time. I've preached hundreds of messages, but I have never quoted a rapper before in my message. <laughs> so this is a first. Take note, okay? So this is a first. I'm going to quote a rapper. He's a famous Christian rapper. I actually haven't heard this song. I saw the quote up on Scott Rickey's cubicle in our office here, and, and I looked it up online. I'll have to go listen to it at some point, but some of you will know who this is. I, I know who this is, but uh, his name is Lecrae, okay? So some of you may know that. But um, anyway... He wrote a song, and in there, this is his quote, if you live for people's approval, you'll die by their rejection. Isn't that true? If you live for people's approval, you will die by their rejection. I love that quote. If you live for people's approval, you will die by their rejection. See, approval feels so good. But then someone turns on you and goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't feel good. And now you want to do whatever you can to get that approval back. Actually, that's not a good place to be. Let me tell you something. Every man or woman who has ever done something good, or, I, or at least I should say almost everyone, almost every man or woman who's ever done anything for God in history, I'll tell you, at some point they've experienced what David experienced here. And that is people turning on them, not because they've done something wrong, but people just turning on them, rejecting them because of their sinful insights. And you know what Jesus actually warned us about? I mean, it happened to Jesus, it happened to David, it happened to Joseph. We go on and on and on. Pretty much any biography you read of someone who's done something great for God, at some point they were trucking along and there was a person or people that were close to them that at a certain point they were following Jesus and, and for no good reason, I mean, there's no good reason for Saul to turn on David, but for no good reason, those people who were close to them turned on them and rejected them. It's one of the most painful things you can go through. It happened to Jesus, though, and Jesus told us if we're going to follow him, we need to expect that it will happen to us. He said this in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, I just need to take a time for just a moment. But this passage, if you, if you take this passage out of context, I just want to tell you, it's, it, what Jesus is not saying here is that he likes to cause disunity, okay? This is not Jesus saying, oh, I love those brutal family gatherings where I can just mess things up and I'm putting people against each other. And No, 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 Jesus does not do that. This is not Jesus saying he actively works to pit people against each other. That's what the devil does, okay? But what Jesus is saying here is that it is pretty much inevitable. It is pretty much inevitable that if you truly follow him and you have a sensitive heart to the Lord and you follow him and you walk with him and you obey him and serve him, at some point in your life, the clo- some of the closest people to you are going to be the ones that turn on you and not for any good reason. It'll be just because you were following Jesus. He says it's pretty much inevitable. It's not that he's making it happen, but if you, f- if you choose to follow Jesus, at some point he says, just expect it. And then he goes on, he says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, actually, you have signing up to follow Jesus means I'm signing up to do it even if the people around me reject me. 
That's what it means. That's what he says when you've got to love me more than these people. It's not that we're not supposed to love these people. The point is, if they're going to turn on you, because if he hadn't said this, I know what some Christians would do. If he hadn't preached this, then what some Christians would do, the moment people turn on them, they would say, well, this can't be God's will. It can't be God's will that people close to me would turn on me and hate me, so I must be doing something wrong. i got to you know, bring my life back in line in such a way that I can appease them. And Jesus says, absolutely not. Jesus says, do you love me enough? to follow me even though loved ones and clo people close to you will turn on you and their approval feels so good, but their rejection will hurt just as much. And do you love me enough to keep going even when that happens? See, really what we're talking about here is maturity. Uh, maturity. A lot of Christians, and this is true around the world, but I can't speak for the rest of the world. I, I am convinced that any problem you find here, I know some people say, well, in Steinbeck it's like this and this is one of our problems, and I find the more we do church renewal, if it's a problem here, it's a problem in Latin America, it's a problem in Africa. The human race is, is the same everywhere. You find a problem somewhere else, it's here. You find a problem here, it's there. It's not that things are so different. But anyway, that aside, I'll just speak for here. There's a lot of people in this community who are sitting on the sidelines because someone stabbed them in the back in church or hurt them. And do you know on Judgment Day, that is not going to be an excuse for Jesus. You're going to go up there and say, why'd you spend the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of your life sitting on the sideline doing nothing for the kingdom? Well, because so-and-so hurt my feelings and they shouldn't have done it. And Jesus is going, that's why you stopped? Did you love me enough? I told you this would happen. You are going to get stabbed in the back by other people that call themselves Christians, by people that should love you. Absolutely. It will happen. Do you love me enough not to quit? That's maturity. It's going to happen. So I wonder, I, you know, something I've been doing in this series this summer a few times, and I'm going to do it again now, is I wonder if we just need to stop and pray for just a moment and just, and just make a commitment to God right now. Because some of you are going through this right now. Some of you are right in the middle of something right now, and you're right in the middle of this. And some of you are not, and you're going, oh, it's, it's no biggie. But whatever the case, I'm praying that God's going to plant some seeds. Because if you're going through this right now, then God's going to speak to you. And if you're not, there's seeds, because when it does happen, because Jesus says it's pretty much inevitable. So if it's not happening to you now, it will at some point. But the question is, do you love Jesus enough to keep following him? Think of David with Saul. Saul was like a father figure. He got, he got brought into Saul's inner circle. He's praying, playing worship music for him while he's oppressed. He's knocked down this big giant. Saul's given him all kinds of promotions. Saul's like a, a, a father figure. We, we read the story and we just go, well, Saul was a bad guy all along. David didn't feel Saul was a bad guy at the beginning. And now Saul absolutely, utterly turns on him and is suspicious of him for no good reason. You don't think that hurt? You don't think that hurt? That hurt. Okay? That hurt. And so the question I want to ask today is, do you love Jesus enough to keep serving him and keep walking with him and keep loving him even when people close to you or people in a church or whoever turn on you and hurt you? So I want you just to close your eyes for a moment and bow your heads with me and we'll just stop right now. Lord Jesus, I just thank you again for your word that is so relevant for us today. So relevant. Jesus, some of us are going through this right now. We got, it, we got people's names in our minds right now. And they've turned on us for no good reason. And other, us, others of us, we're not there right now, but we will be at some point. Lord Jesus, we want to let those things go to you right now. We just want to commit to you. We want to say to you, we love you enough to pick up our crosses and follow you anyway. We love you too much to quit just because it's hard. We love you too much to quit just because someone stabbed us in the back. We love you too much to quit just because we've been rejected by people close to us. Would you make us strong? And would you help us to forgive? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? Amen. amen. Well, that's the first side of things. What do you do if someone does this to you? You keep going. You keep going. And you keep loving Jesus and keep seeking him. But now we got to actually, I actually have to put the shoe on the other foot, don't we? Whenever we read these stories, we automatically, it's just human nature, we automatically put ourselves in the shoes of the hero. Isn't that true? So when we read David and Goliath, we don't put ourselves in Goliath's shoes, right? Nobody thinks of ourselves as Goliath. We think of ourselves as David. When we read David and Saul, very few of us anyway, I'm, pro I'm betting pretty much none of us, read it and go, I'm Saul, we again think of ourselves as David. 
But the fact of the matter is, if people are getting backstabbed in the church, they're getting backstabbed by people at church, and that's us right here, right? So some of us here are the souls, and maybe all of us at various, at various points in time. So the question is, how do we keep, not just what do we do when people do this to us, but how do we keep from being Saul? How do we keep from being the people who do this to others? Because it's true that people's approval is fickle. Approval can go to rejection that quick with an unhealthy person, and it can go that quick in us towards others as well. And so I want to just tell you two big things to watch out for in your life that we see in, in Saul's life. And there's more. People are complicated. There'd be more than these two things. But I want to talk to you about two big things in your life that will poison you and twist your insides towards others. And those are insecurity and jealousy. All right? Insecurity and jealousy. Insecurity is a poison that will make you feel threatened by people you should love and appreciate. Okay? Insecurity is a poison that will make you feel threatened by people you should love and appreciate. That's what's happening to salt. We'll see that throughout this. We're going to see this further in some verses we're going to come to, but he's driven by fear. David is absolutely loyal. It has nothing to do with David. David, and we're going to see later in this story, which we won't get to in this message, David even refuses to kill Saul when he has opportunities. David is absolutely loyal. This has nothing to do with David. This has to do with the insides of Saul. He feels so insecure. David's not threatening him, but Saul feels threatened because he's insecure. And so when David's helping him, that's fine. But the moment people start liking David, that is a threat to Saul. Insecurity is a poison that will turn you against people you should love and appreciate. Now, of course, when we read these stories, sometimes we don't take the time to apply them to our own lives. So we just think, well, I don't have a problem with that. I'm not a king and I don't have anybody, you know, I don't have people singing about tens of thousands and killing giants and those sorts of things. So I'm okay. But it'll be more everyday stuff for us, won't it? Maybe you're a woman here today and maybe it's your insecurity has to do with how your appearance and maybe there's someone else in your family or in your ministry that you feel is prettier or thinner than you, and that's the thing. And you don't ever consciously think about it, but that's your insecurity. In the moment you're around someone like that and other people like them, immediately you begin to judge everything they do through a negative lens. Just like David, Saul began to eye David. He was suspicious of him immediately. He went from loving him to suspicious of him. Why? Because he had insecurity. And so you'll start to judge, and you won't think of it as that way. You won't consciously go through it like that, but subconsciously you'll judge everything that person does, and you'll see what they say is negative, and you'll see what they do is negative, and you'll always think their motives are wrong. You'll think that they're doing wrong towards you. That's insecurity. It's a poison. Or it might be that you're just afraid of them in your business or in your ministry. You're just afraid of them because they're popular, and they have a lot of gifting and charisma, and you're just, you feel insecure in your position. And they might be totally loyal to you, and you should appreciate them. You should be glad for what they do for you, but you view everything they do through suspicion because of insecurity. Or it might just be outright jealousy. You just don't like it when somebody else gets the credit. You don't like it when everybody wants to follow somebody else. You don't like it that somebody else is so much more gifted than you or that they're getting so much more attention, and so you want to sabotage them. You want to sabotage them. And so you begin to let these feelings, uh, you let, begin to let these feelings take root in your heart. And you begin to look at them in a certain way and you begin to dwell on these thoughts. Well, there's a warning here in this story for when you allow insecurity and jealousy to take root in your heart. And we see in verse 10, it says this, the next day. So Paul, Saul goes from promoting David and yes, David, in a moment, his insecurity and jealousy come out and he turns on David and look at this in verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. When you begin to dwell on those thoughts, when you begin to dwell and you don't deal with your insecurity and your jealousy, but you begin to dwell on that bitterness, you give a door to the devil to come into your life. You give a door to the devil to come into your life and suddenly you'll have more than you bargained for. You'll have more than you bargained for. And here's the thing. Here's the thing about insecurity and jealousy and bitterness. You can never satisfy them. They'll just consume you. That's what we see here with Saul. We're going to see it. He's actually going to begin to lose your, his mind. Why? Because these things will actually consume you. They'll never be satisfied. You might think to yourself, you know what? I'm just going to indulge. I'm just going to spend a couple of days or a week indulging in these bitter feelings towards so-and-so because it kind of feels good. Doesn't it feel good at first? I'm just going to indulge. I don't like their motives. I don't like who they are. It's driven by insecurity. It's driven by jealousy. And I'm just going to imbibe in these negative feelings, these bitter feelings towards them. And you think uh, that it's going to feel better because it feels better at first. But here's the thing about those feelings. They're never satisfied. You can never, you can never get enough. They will consume you. It'll just get worse and worse. It's not like uh, eating food where you have a defense mechanism. Earlier this week, uh, my wife, LaDawn, she makes this amazing pizza. She made this amazing homemade pizza. I had chicken and pepperoni and, 
and uh, oh, tomatoes, and oh, it was just so good. I just, and homemade is so good. And I went into supper, and I'm like, okay, three pieces, three pieces, three pieces. Next thing I know, it's like five or six, and I'm like, oh, man, that was a mistake, right? But my body has a defense mechanism. When I get too much, I get full, and then I got to stop. And then at that point, I don't want any more. It's like, oh, get that away from me, right? I don't want any more pizza. It's really, really good. I don't want any more, right? My body has a defense mechanism to make me full. Now I don't want it anymore. Your body does not have a defense mechanism like that against these bitter things. And you think, I'll just, I'll just play with these feelings for a week or a month or whatever, and then once I'm full, I can move on. You won't be able to move on. You won't ever get full and be like, oh, I've had enough of that. They will just take more and more and more of you, and you will give an open door to the devil. And we see what happens with Saul now. He just becomes utterly consumed. And look, as we just move on here in verse 10, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyres. He did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled his spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. It'll take you to a bad place. It'll consume you. And we see it's all driven by fear, as I said before. Next verse, Saul was afraid of David. He should have been so thankful. David could have been his right-hand man. David could have been his biggest help. I mean, David would have made Saul look good, and he was loyal. I mean, these kind of people are hard to find. But instead of appreciating David, instead of allowing David to make him a better king, fear makes him hate David. Fear, insecurity, jealousy. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, well what do we do with this then? If, 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 I, if I partake in these thoughts, if I imbibe in them, they're going to control me. So, so what do I do then? Do I just push them down? Like if I'm having these thoughts about someone, if I'm feeling that insecurity, if I'm feeling that suspicion towards someone, do I just push them down? Do I try and forget them? And any of you have ever tried that before? It, it doesn't work. Pushing thoughts down doesn't work. Trying not to think things doesn't work. The more you try not to think it, you'll think it. I've had that problem too much in my life. I've tried to push thought, get rid of thoughts by pushing them down. You can't push them down. So you say, well, then we're trapped. Because I can't ignore them. I can't push them down. But I can't enjoy them because they'll consume me. So now I'm trapped. Okay? So Chris, what are you saying then? What are we supposed to do with this when I have insecurity, when I have jealousy, when I have bitterness, when I have fear and suspicion towards someone? What do I do with those feelings? Okay? And I'll tell you what you do with them. You can't push them down. You certainly can't dabble in them. Okay? What you do is you process them with the Lord. I want to just give you four just quick practical points. And there's many more we could look at. But we've talked about lots of these messages before. I want to just give you four practical points. You, you don't push the thoughts down, but you deal with them with the Lord. Okay? And the first one is recognize that they're there. Just recognize that they're there. The first step is just be aware. And, and so many of us are just absolutely, completely unaware we have these negative thoughts. You know, we're so busy. We just get up, go to work, busy, 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 busy. You know, sports, kids' schedule, hobby, different things that we're all doing, right? And at the end of the day, in our culture now, we don't even know how to rest. When we come home to rest, we just fill our minds with media, which just keeps our minds buzzing even faster. So we don't know, ever know how to, many of us don't know how to just sit and just be. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 51 says, search me, O God, and know my heart, okay? When you, you know what that is a prayer for? God already knows your heart. Search me and know your heart means take some time, Lord, and reveal to me my heart. I'm the one that needs my heart searched out, right? Search me. Be still and know that I am God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. You actually have to have quiet in your life to figure out by the Holy Spirit's power what's going on inside of you. But many of us, our minds just rev from the moment we get up to the moment we go to bed. We are revved on work and hobbies and media and then go to sleep exhausted. And there's no time for reflection in the Word of God or to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. And as a result, we have these bitter feelings to people, but we never stop to think. We just think it's their fault. Well, the reason I don't like them is because their motives are wrong. And we never actually stop with the Holy Spirit to stop and wonder, wait a minute, why would I be suspicious of them? Maybe that's coming from inside of me. Maybe that has nothing to do with them. Recognize they're there. There's something so beautiful. This is why I've preached it a thousand times, and I'll preach it a thousand times more. For the rest of my life that I'm preaching, I will continue to say this. I just really believe to walk with the Lord, you need regular, daily time, quiet, in his word, with a journal, whatever it is, whether you journal on your phone or on a computer or whatever, but you, need re you and I need regular time when we're not checking our emails and we're not checking our texts and we're not checking how many people like us on Facebook. I mean, talk about being addicted to approval. 
and we actually count likes. I mean, I just, I think the writers of the scripture would just be laughing their heads off if they saw our world today. Can you believe it? We're addicted to being liked. But we need actually daily time where we don't, aren't connected to all that stuff, where we look in this ancient word, thousands of years old, and with the Holy Spirit with us, we quiet ourselves. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Be still and know that I am God. And have some time for some Holy Spirit-inspired introspection to let him examine us and show us, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why do I constantly feel negative to this group of people or certain types of people or that person? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then you begin to realize, I feel really insecure. The Lord begins to show you, I feel really insecure about some things. I feel really inadequate. You want to know something? I think, I think every single one of us here today, the, more, the older I get, the more I know myself, the more I know other people, I don't care how confident you look. I think every human being, to some, now on different levels of the scale, I think every human being deals with insecurity or inadequacy somewhere. And those insecurities and those inadequacies drive us and make us suspicious and jealous. And at a certain point with the Lord, you sit in that quiet place and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I feel totally insecure in this area. I feel inadequate. You want to know something? They've done lots of studies that actually there are parts of your brain that are only engaged when you're writing. And I, and I think it probably holds true to typing or whatever too, but whatever it means, but that are not engaged by reading or talking or just thinking about something. So there's something about journaling. You sit down and it just, it's actually freeing. And this brings me to the second point. You recognize that those things are there in your own life. And then you begin to write them out. You acknowledge those negative feelings, those hurts, those inadequacies, those insecurities to God. And you write them out. Lord Jesus, I feel so insecure about X, whatever it is. There is something just healing about writing that out to the Lord, you and him. And another thing we would call it is just confession. Now, the reason I didn't want to start off with the word confession is a lot of people have the wrong idea about confession. They think it's feeling guilty, like, oh, I'm so bad I have these things here. It's like you finally, the Lord reveals to you, wow, you got some major insecurity in there, buddy. And you go, oh my goodness, I'm a bad person. I'm terrible. And Jesus goes, it's been there all along. Like you just only found out today, finally, figured it out. It's been there for five years. It's been there for 10 years. I'm not mad at you. I want to work on it with you. So we're not talking about, in your journal, you write this down, you go, oh, I'm such a bad person. No, it's actually freeing. Oh, Jesus, I feel so insecure about this. I feel so inadequate in this area. And it's just free. And Jesus says, yes, you do. Let's work on that together. In fact, one of the reasons he allows us to feel these insecurities and inadequacies is because he wants to walk with us through them. And we get to experience him loving us and touching us. And then this brings up a third thing, which is acknowledge these struggles and these feelings to someone you trust, which is just more confession, right? You have people in your life that you trust. And at a certain level, you just say, I am really struggling with insecurity in this area, and it's causing me to think certain thoughts and be suspicious and bitter and all these sorts of things. And you bring it to someone else. And you're just open about it. You're not hiding it anymore. Powerful. And then as you do this, what happens over time is you let God speak truth into your life. I'm not talking about one time. Sometimes God does it this way, and it's wonderful. But one time, you sat with God. He spoke something powerful into your life, and you're set free forever. That sometimes happens, but most of the time, he works through your life in a process. And over and over and over again, you talk to him about these things. And he begins to love you. And now a verse, suddenly he gives you a verse in the Psalms or Isaiah or somewhere in the Bible, a verse that speaks truth deep into your life. And I, I mean, I was meditating on a couple again this morning. Some of the truths God has spoken into my life for the last few years, identity, where he says, Chris, this is who you are. And he just speaks those things into you powerfully. And it's right out of the word of God. And it's so powerful. It begins to heal things deep, deep, deep in you and change you. And insecurity and jealousy and these things begin to flee. Powerful. Powerful. Process your hurts with God and others. Don't stuff them down. They won't go away. All right, well, we've talked lots about Saul. And there's lots we could say about Jonathan, but I've I got to finish this message with one thing. And if we went to chapters 19 and 20, Jonathan, I mean, we've looked at Saul. Saul's the example of a bad friend. He's someone that likes you when you're doing something for him, but the moment you're not meeting their needs, the moment you're not, you, the moment they feel you're a threat, they go from loving you to hating you just like that. That's Saul. He's a bad friend. Okay? And we've all, most of us have experienced a bad friend at some point. Some of us, many of us probably at some point have been a bad friend to someone. But then there's Jonathan, okay? And Jonathan's a good friend. Not everybody's a Saul. And we all need a Jonathan or two or three in our lives. 
and we need to be, and everybody, and there's so many people in this world that need us to be a Jonathan for them, and there's lots of things. We could look at lots of traits in, in chapters 19 and 20 about Jonathan. I just don't have time to do all that. Maybe I'll do some of that next week. But Jonathan's a good friend, and I want to show you one trait of Jonathan's that's just amazing. And uh, we're going to go back to a verse that's up there already that we looked at before. But what I'm going to show you now is at first, when I first tell you what it is, what this trait is, you're going to think, really, that, that was the whole thing? That was the big thing? Like, that's what we came this message for? Like, hmm? Right? Now, of course, uh, you know, many of you tithe today, but just remember, the, the message was free. You didn't have to pay to get in, right? So don't, don't complain too much. But uh, um, you're going to think, wow, that was the big point. It, it's so small. It's so practical. It's so daily. And yet it's profound. It's profound the way this will change relationships with people that you love. And if you'll do this for people, it will speak love to them at a level that many other things won't. And, uh, and so we read here, back to verses 3 and 4, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Okay, and so we talked about this before briefly, that in Eastern culture, this was like the most, this is like the, the something you could do more than anything else. This would show honor. This would show respect, Okay. Now, the thing that I find so amazing about this is there's no hint of competition or jealousy with Jonathan. Now, if anybody should be threatened by David, it should be Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul. If anybody should feel threatened by David, it should be Jonathan. They're, they're roughly the same age. Jonathan, Jonathan's next in line for the throne. I mean, if David's going to be so popular that all of Israel is singing songs about him, they love him, and, and he leads him into battle, if anybody's going to lose their position, it's Jonathan. He's the one that's in line to be king. So if anybody in this whole story should be feeling competitive or jealous or threatened by David, it should be Jonathan. But you know what we find Jonathan doing? Everybody's building up David. Oh, you be Goliath, and, he, and you've done your 10,000 Saul's thousands, and everybody's cheering him on. And we don't find Jonathan off in a corner going, oh, it's not that big a deal. He's not that great. I mean, it was, sure, it was a fine shot to the forehead there, but it's a lot, bit of a lucky shot, right? You, you don't find him in a corner. You, you ever know people like that? And, and we'll just leave ourselves out of the equation, right? You ever been that person? Everybody else starts talking good about someone, and then isn't there always a group of people? It's the moment everybody starts complimenting someone, there's a group of people over here on the side going, it's not that great, right? It's not that big of a deal. He's, he's full of himself, right? Jonathan is not over in a corner going, he's full of himself, okay? Because you know what? He's not, he doesn't have jealousy or insecurity. That's what that is. When we look at someone else and everybody's complimenting them and we have to go over here and say they're not that big of a deal, that's jealousy and insecurity at work. That's his human nature. And Jonathan's the one who should be threatened. But I want you to see, Jonathan is at the front of the line. Everybody is celebrating David. And Jonathan says, you're not going to leave me behind. I'm not going to be over in the corner here. I'm going to get to the front of the line, and I'm going to do more. He's the son of the king. But it's not David humbling himself and giving his armor to Jonathan. It is Jonathan hum humbling himself and giving all his stuff over to David. It's an incredible display of honor. It's an incredible display of honor and gratitude from a person who should be threatened by David. And so the thing I want to say here, what is the, the trait of Jonathan we say, see here, and we could see more if we looked in other chapters, but uh, something that will change your relationships is, to, is what I'm going to call here gladly share in people's joys and successes. Okay, Gladly share in people's joys and successes. Now again, you might think that just doesn't seem like, when we think about love, this is what we think of self-sacrifice, right? Like, what are the traits of someone if you really love them? Self-sacrifice, serve them, kindness, patience, those, those kinds, all wonderful things. Absolutely, those are parts of love. Very, very important. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 gives us that whole list. Very rarely, when people talk about how do you love others in a very practical way, do we ever talk about this, and yet it is every bit as profound as any of those other ones, and it's more practical in some ways, because some of those things, how do you self-sacrifice for someone every day, right? Like, how do you get up every morning, I'm going to sacrifice for my wife today? What does that mean, okay? But you want to have something where you actually build her up, or you build your kids up, or you build the people up in your life in a way that absolutely fills them with joy and love. Share, gladly share with them in their joys or successes, okay? Gladly share with them their joys or successes. Let's touch this from a few different angles, shall we? Imagine with me for a moment that you have just done something really exciting, maybe, or maybe you got a promotion, 
or, or, or you moved or something happened and you're really pumped and you go to, to some people, you're telling a group of people that are your friends or your family or whatever and you're excited, you're telling them, oh man, you should have seen it, it was this, or we're moving, it's all, because we were made to share joy. Did you know that? It's, a, it's the way we're wired. If a human being gets excited about something, that human being must share with other human beings. We were wired that way, okay? We're wired that way, okay? Imagine now that you're telling, oh man, I gotta tell you about this because somehow the experience is not enough to have it to myself. I have to share it in order for it, for it to be real. Now imagine the people that you're telling, you're so excited and they're just looking at you and they just go, oh, when's dinner? And they start talking about something else. You ever had that happen to you? I, I've actually had that happen to me. It is so awkward. You, you just put your heart out there. You're so pumped about this now. Do, do I keep talking about this now? Do we kind of change the subject? Everybody's sitting around awkwardly watching this. It's like, that was odd. That was really odd. Why? Because you put your heart out there because this is what human beings, you know what that says? You know what that says? You don't matter to me because what matters to you doesn't matter to me. That's what it says. Now you can tell a person, you can write them cards and you can tell them a hundred times, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You do that one time to a person to some degree and it doesn't matter, all those I love yous are just in the trash pretty much because that says you don't matter to me. You want to love someone in your life, they might be into something. So for example, let's make this really every day. They might be into a sport and they might be into golf or basketball, or weightlifting, or whatever. They're into something, okay? You want to show love to someone? Ask some questions. Get into their life. Say, talk to me about that. Talk to me. I want to, I want to, I want to share that joy with you. And when you do that, you begin to draw that out of them. What that says is, you might think, well, that just seems like a, a dumb little thing. We should be talking about more spiritual things. Well, yes, there's a place we should talk about spiritual things. There's no question. But if you never do that, what it says is, I don't care about you. And you know what lots of Christians do? They go around hiding their real passions from other Christians because they don't think they'll be accepted. And that just does not communicate love. Now, I know one of the, one of the objections will be, yeah, but, but that's worldly stuff, right? Like, so-and-so just went on another trip to Hawaii. I don't want to ask about that. It's January, right? Like, you just went to Hawaii again. Wow. <laughs> show, show me the pictures. <laughs> right? What, what was the temperature? Oh, right. That, that, that's just, but we think that's, that's just worldly stuff. I don't care about that. Tell me, you know, don't talk to me about, you know, how much weight you lifted or, or, you know, what you shot at golf. Tell me if you did your devotions today. That's what we think is spiritual. You know what that is? That's over-spiritualization. Having passions in life, it doesn't mean you're worldly. It means you're human. Having passions in life doesn't mean you're worldly. It means you're human. So to love things and to love life, yes, there's a place people go where it's worldly and they forget about God. But can I tell you something? You can't love God more just by subtracting. A lot of people try to love God more by just loving stuff less. You want to know how you love God more? Love him more. Sometimes you'll have to discipline yourself to have some boundaries so you can pursue him more. But I've spent too much of my life trying to love God more by trying to love stuff less and it doesn't work. You want to love Jesus more? Spend some time with him and get to know him. You'll fall in love with him. Bring him into the stuff that you're doing. But this idea that I can't draw someone out, that people got to be hiding around me, I got to be a spiritual person. I can't talk about what I really love or what I really like to do when I'm around Chris because he's just too spiritual. No, no, that is not love. And this isn't optional. Jesus said the most important commandments are these, love God and love people. You want to love people? Get into their lives. There is something that happens in a person's heart when you share an experience or you share a joy with them. My dad's always been really good at this. Uh, this last uh, Monday, a bunch of the staff took up a collection and, and sent me skydiving. Okay, so I think it's because they don't want me to be their, their boss anymore. But anyway, that's my <laughs> suspicion. I lived, haha. But anyway... Um, <laughs> So, so they sent me on Monday, and, uh, and that's just a crazy thing to do. And, uh, but anyway, so I, I went up in the plane, and you sit at 11,000 feet. I thought, oh, I'm not nervous, I'm not nervous. And then they opened the door at 11,000 feet, and I went, oh, my goodness, right? Like, <gasps> and I'm sitting on the edge of a plane with two legs dangling over, and then you go over, okay? So I couldn't stop talking about it for two days, obviously. You get down to the ground, and I was never scared, and that was amazing. Well, I was terrified, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Wednesday, I had a, a phone conversation 
plan with my dad. We, we meet every Wednesday or phone when he's in BC, they're writing, and, and so, because we have church stuff to discuss, and so we had an hour, and then we had meetings and stuff, so uh, stuff we had to get through, and, but we got on the phone, and all he wanted to talk about for 20 minutes, he, he, I, it wasn't me driving, it was him, he kept asking questions about skydiving, he thought it was so neat, he was sharing with me, there's something that happens when you share someone, something with something, it, make, it just multiplies the joy and the love, you feel loved, it's so fun, it's the, it's the way we were made. You know, imagine this. Imagine with me just for a moment. Imagine that you go somewhere in the world and you see the most amazing thing ever. I don't know what that is. You see or do something. It's like the most beautiful, exciting thing ever. You go there. Now imagine you have to go there by yourself and you're not allowed to take pictures and you're not allowed to tell anyone. How much do you enjoy that experience? Okay, the most amazing thing. It's the most beautiful, exciting thing ever. You go there, and it's like, wow, this is incredible. And the first thing you want to do is tell someone, you should have seen, oh, I can't tell you. You, I did this, oh, I can't tell you. you. If you would see something like that and not be able to tell someone, I tell you, your joy will be about this high, and your frustration will be like this high. Because human beings, we were made to share it. We were made to share it. And it, it, we can't even enjoy the experience if we can't share it. Now imagine that same experience. You go there with your friends or a spouse or family or whatever. You take lots of pictures. You come home. You're talking about it. That experience is 100 times better. Oh, you should have seen it. It was incredible. Oh, wow, wow, wow. It, having it with people multiplies the joy and multiplies the love. And like I said... Jesus said the two most important commandments in the Bible are love God and love people. This is the way we love people. Now, I'm going to go to the weekly challenge in just a moment, but I want to say one last parting thing to parents because I feel like us as parents, we don't always do this good with our kids. The, the people we should love the most, this very practical way to love them, is something we often do the least. Because we come home every day weighed down by our adult cares. Isn't that true? We come home at the end of the day and we're weighed down by adult cares and adult thoughts. And now your kid comes up and says, look at my fidget spinner, look at my fidget spinner, look at my fidget spinner, look at my fidget spinner. <laughs> right? How many of you know what a fidget spinner is? How many of you know what a fidget spinner is? I did not know what one was. I don't know, maybe it was a month and a half ago. I had no idea. And one day my son Charlie was like, Dad, I gotta get a fidget spinner. And at first I just went along with it because he gets excited about a lot of stuff. Oh, that's really great. And he kept talking about talking about fun. I said, What is a fidget spinner? <laughs> and he began to tell me, and it was so awesome. And, and then we went outside that day. I'd never heard of them before. And there's a bunch of kids coming down the street, and all of them have them. And since that day, it's every sign, it's every store. My kids save up their money, they buy fidget spinners. Um, it's fidget spinners, right? But now you think to yourself, Yeah, but that's just a kid thing. I got more important things to think about. No, you don't. It might not be important to you, but the fact that it's important to them means the best way to show them love is what's important to you is important to me. And I don't care how big your adult concerns are. To them, that's big. And if you don't enter into them, with them into the things that are big to them, I'll tell you, you can say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. It doesn't do much unless you show them. What matters to you matters to me. Jesus says, love God, love people. You want to love people? Share their joy with them. Share their interests with them. And you say, yeah, but I don't want people to get, to get worldly. If you share their joys and you share their loves, you will have many opportunities to share Jesus with them too. If you honor what matters to them, if you make a big deal of the things that matter to them, now you're going to have a wide open highway to bring Jesus into these things. And if Jesus matters to you, they're going to start to share Jesus with you. And it's going to be powerful. It's going to be powerful. So I want to leave with a weekly challenge and then we'll pray. Very, very practical. My, my wife, LaDonna, I've been working on this one. We've been, we, we got on this thing, I don't know, it's been the last couple months for sure, but about sharing joy with people. And I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more and more aware of how bad I am at this, but we're growing in it. We're seeing how powerful it is. But imagine if we all made a habit of doing this. But this week, let's try and start a habit. At least one time every day this week, make eye contact with somebody in your life, a kid, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, and be excited with them about something they're excited about or interested with them and something they're interested about. Gladly share it with them. Don't, don't just listen to them tell their story so that you can tell a better story. Listen to them tell their story, whether it be your kid or someone else, and then ask questions and encourage them to talk about it more. Enter into their world and enjoy it with them. You will, you will help them to experience love in ways they haven't experienced it before.
And then in your devotions every day, journal what happened and pray for opportunities to do it again. But let's try and start a habit. And then the second thing is, ask God to reveal to you anyone in your life where insecurity and or jealousy is making you suspicious of that person instead of loving them. And then acknowledge it to God and begin to pray into that and pray a blessing on that person until you can all out love that person, all right? Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. You know what's amazing? Actually, open up your eyes for one second. I forgot about this. <laughs> you know what's really neat to think? If Jesus is asking us to do this with others, you ever thought that Jesus wants to do this with you? If loving others means I share in their joys and excitements, did you ever think that Jesus would want to share with you in your joys and excitements? Most of us think that's not spiritual. Jesus doesn't care about it. No, 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 no. Jesus loves you. You have a hobby. He loves you more than anybody else in your life. You, want, you have a hobby. You have stuff you're passionate about. Did you know you can talk to that about Jesus? He wants to share that with you too. That's the kind of Jesus he is. That's the kind of Jesus we're about to pray to. Okay, now close your eyes again. Let's pray to that Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, thank you. Thank you for accepting us. Thank you for sharing our joys with us. Sorry that we so often shield ourselves from you because we just think, all you care about is the spiritual side of ourselves, but you care about our whole lives. We want to get better at sharing our joy with you, and then we want to get better at sharing other people's joys so that they can feel your love. And we want to get better at sharing other people's joys so that we can bring you into those people's lives. Would you help us become amazing, loving people? In your precious, wonderful, glorious, amazing name, Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.